In this second sermon of the Tomorrowland sermon series, I want to discuss our evolving technology and what it tells us about our future and more importantly, what it tells us about ourselves. In this text from the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus explores an innovative idea. For centuries, his people had lived according to strict dietary laws. It was believed that eating certain kinds of foods could make a person unclean. And there were also some pretty specific rules about washing your hands before you eat. Nothing wrong with that, to be sure. But Jesus uses this opportunity to teach a valuable lesson. Namely, that it is not what we put into our mouth that defiles us, but rather what comes out of it. Jesus warns us that we can defile ourselves with our words. So what happens in an increasingly digital society when everyone is handed a megaphone? The scripture reading today is from the book of Matthew, chapter 15. Then he called the crowd to him and said to them, Listen and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but it is what comes out of the mouth that defiles. Then the disciples approached and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard what you said? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if one blind person guides another, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain this parable to us. Then he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth enters the stomach and goes out into the sewer? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this is what defiles. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you, and may they be in keeping always with the teachings of our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Lusty romance novels are not exactly the height of literary excellence. Now, that's not a criticism. I mean, I don't think they're trying to be. I can't say that I've ever read one, so maybe that's an unfair judgment, but it doesn't seem like anyone takes them very seriously. No one, that is, but Google's in-house machine learning team called Google Brain. In an effort to teach an artificial intelligence to think, they fed it over 3,000 romance novels to see that if it could write romantic poetry. Now, the results were troubling, an eerie and mournful collection of short poems with titles such as It Made Me Want to Cry and I Want to Talk to You. I want to talk to you. I want to be with you. I don't want to be with you. I don't want to be with you. She didn't want to be with him. Okay, so that's a bit of a downer. But it's still a lot more cheerful than this one, which is called there is no one else in the world. 
There is no one else in sight. They were the only ones who mattered. They were the only ones left. He had to be with me. She had to be with him. I had to do this. I wanted to kill him. I started to cry. I turned to him. Artificial intelligence, or AI, is already prevalent in our society, working quietly behind the scenes to manage our social media feeds, analyze GPS data, juggle algorithms, employ facial recognition technology, and automate industrial manufacturing. But reading these poems, I'm left wondering if we really want to entrust our future to these so-called intelligences. Not because they're going to murder all of us one day when they become sentient, as some predict, but because they're weird and angst-ridden. I mean, sure, it's not unusual for an assembly line worker to experience depression or doubts about his life, but what happens when the AI that's running the whole factory decides to have an existential crisis? What happens if it gets angry? What happens, God help us, if it falls in love? I know that sounds like science fiction, but 30 years ago, most of the things we take for granted today sounded like science fiction. I mean, who could have predicted, who could have imagined that we would one day invent a refrigerator that could show you what's on the shelves inside on a fancy LED screen, saving us the laborious and tiresome effort of opening the door. Now, in all seriousness, I support technological progress, but it has a tendency to get a little out of hand sometimes. I grew up, like many of you, in an analog era. Phone books, VHS tapes, rotary telephones, audio cassettes, TV antennas, TV guide. It was a slower, more deliberate time. Things took longer to do. If you wanted to watch a movie, you had to go to the video store. And when you were done, you had to rewind the tape. If you wanted to take a road trip, you couldn't just plug an address into your phone. You had to get out a map and chart your own course. And then you had to figure out how to fold it back up again along the proper creases. If you wanted the news, you tuned in at 6 o'clock or you picked up a newspaper. This was the world I knew. But by the time I'd come of age, everything had changed. It all happened so fast. First, we were logging into America Online on a noisy dial-up modem. Then we were carrying around cell phones. And now our entire society is almost entirely digital, an amalgam of apps and online services and algorithms that influence everything from our musical preferences to our daily news. Technology has changed the world, and our collective innovation has accomplished remarkable things. But not everything has changed for the better. The author William Gibson famously said that the future has arrived. It just isn't evenly distributed. It's a commentary on social inequality and the ways in which technology benefits some people at the expense of others. Since the Industrial Revolution, a lot of people have gotten very rich by plundering the Earth's finite resources. But at what cost to the rest of us? At what cost to the rest of the world? Our technology has devastated the planet, and perhaps green technology can save it. But only if we can muster the collective 
political will, which sounds like an oxymoron these days, collective political will, when our politics are so divided and partisan to the extent that life-saving vaccines and masks have become politicized in the midst of a global pandemic. The internet has democratized nearly everything, and in some ways, that's great. Aspiring musicians and artists and filmmakers can easily share their creations with the world, coders can write open source programs that are freely distributed, and people in New Zealand can watch this sermon if they wanted to. Well, technically my YouTube videos have actually been banned in New Zealand, so I guess that's a bad example. But the point is, anyone can make something and put it online, which is pretty cool. But it's also kind of a problem. You see, while anyone with a guitar can write a song and share it on Facebook, anyone with an opinion can also spread disinformation on there, or on Twitter, or on message boards like Reddit and 4chan, effectively making us all self-proclaimed news anchors, because that's where a lot of people get their news. And while my kids have traded in Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers for depressingly banal YouTube videos, a lot of us have traded real journalism for partisan influencers, their outrage fueling ours because it's good for business. We've traded in Walter Cronkite for our Uncle Larry and his conspiracy theories about stolen elections and horse dewormer. And now no one can even agree on basic facts or even what amounts to basic decency. In 1993, the philosopher Richard Dawkins published an article in which he coined the term mimetic virus. He theorized that ideas, whether they're religious or philosophical or political, can spread in a similar fashion to biological viruses. A mimetic virus, he called it. And now we seem to be dealing with a meme virus on top of a biological one, a raging pandemic coupled with misinformation that spreads like wildfire across the internet while the virus spreads across our communities. It's gotten so bad that we've got grown men and women standing outside of the D41 offices on Main Street, harassing grade school kids and calling them names just for wearing a mask to school. We just cannot seem to get on the same page. The future has arrived just isn't evenly distributed. Jesus reminds us that what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this is what defiles. For out of the heart come evil intentions, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. You can find plenty of that online, to be sure. But like our words, our technology itself reflects what's in our hearts. Our machines adhere to our programming, our input. If we feed bad romance novels into an artificial intelligence, it's going to produce bad romantic poetry. Similarly, technology can reflect our worst tendencies. That's why facial recognition software, for instance, has built-in racial biases. That's why drones murder people. That's why our social media is so popular and so divisive. It reflects our need for human connection as well as our tragic inability to connect. The internet reflects our impatience 
whether it's video on demand or next day shipping. It reflects our insecurity as we obsessively check our social media feeds for likes and positive feedback and the validation that comes with it. More problematically, it reflects our need to be right all the time. And that's why everyone doubles down on political and medical conspiracy theories on Facebook and Twitter that have no basis in reality. And sadly, some folks would rather go to prison for storming the Capitol or die in the ICU from COVID before they admit that they might have been wrong. The internet is a vehicle for dangerous ideas, but the ideas originate in us. A mirror can only show us what's already there. If an artificial intelligence comes off sounding awkward and angst-ridden, it's because we are too. Well, some of us more than others. It's like that old commercial where the dad finds drugs in his kid's closet and the kid says, I learned it from you, dad. I learned it from watching you. It learned it from watching us. Google's artificial intelligence was gorged on romance novels. Perhaps that's why it seems to excel at writing awkward conversations like this one, another poem that the AI came up with. No, he said. No, he said. No, I said. I know, she said. Thank you, she said. Come with me, she said. Talk to me, she said. Don't worry about it, she said. Don't worry about it, she says, like a siren lurking in the digital sea. But maybe we should worry about it. Maybe we should worry about what our technology tells us about who we are. Maybe we should see it for the mirror that it is, showing us what's in our hearts. If we teach our machines to hate, they will hate. To love, and they will love, albeit awkwardly. If we teach our algorithms to lie, feeding them misinformation, exploitation, and violence, then that is the harvest we will reap. Our tech reflects our hearts, but do our hearts reflect God's will? Don't worry about it, the machine says, but maybe we should. Amen.